And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. The Middle East war continues at a brutal pace. What's next? And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here in snowy Halifax. It's always great to be back in Halifax, the capital of lobster land. For me, anyway. Love Halifax. Today, moon is part of the book tour. Get to that in a second. Uh, but the weather is kind of iffy here today. I'm not sure if I'm going to get out. Heading to uh, Ottawa is the uh, next stop on the book tour. Um, but uh, things are dicey out at the... Stanfield Airport, the Halifax International Airport, but hopefully that'll all work out. It has been a terrific book tour so far, I gotta say. Um, the new book with my uh, co-writer Mark Bulgich, uh, which is called, of course, How Canada Works. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's a really interesting book, and so far it seems to have taken off a little bit with, uh, with book lovers out there. Landed uh, week one at number four on the bestseller list, which is very nice. Um, started the tour in Toronto on Thursday night. Great, uh, great crowd at the uh, Hot Docs Theater. Uh, did a number of television interviews, um, mainly with CTV, and they were terrific with me. Uh, on Friday, drove to uh, Sarnia through ugly kind of southwestern Ontario weather. Uh, but a fantastic crowd in Sarnia on uh, Friday night. Uh, the bookkeeper organized it, a great uh, bookstore in Sarnia. And, um, you know, wonderful questions, lots of book signings, lots of books sold. And then on Saturday, it was kind of a run through parts of southwestern Ontario, stopped in London, made kind of a, uh, an impromptu visit at, a, uh, at an Indigo in uh, North London. And a terrific crowd, and again, hundreds of books sold. Um, uh, then stopped in Burlington, same kind of thing. A uh, impromptu stop at a uh, bookstore in in Burlington. Then Saturday night in Oakville at the Oakville Center for the Performing Arts. Um, a, a a terrific evening with um, uh, you know talk, conversation, and uh, answering questions, and then signing. <laughs> Once again, lots of books. And then out to Halifax yesterday, same kind of thing. Stop at a, a bookstore with uh, meeting people, listening to them. And you know one of the constants in all of these so far that's really uh, kind of blown me away a bit uh, are the people who said, I listen to the bridge. Love the bridge. I listen every day or I listen on Fridays to Chantel and Bruce. I listen on Mondays for Janice Stein. Um, but the number of people who connected with the bridge uh, was really nice and uh, much, very much appreciated. The tour goes on today, as I said, uh, leaving Halifax for Ottawa, hopefully. Um, then uh, tomorrow it's leaving Ottawa for Winnipeg. Then Winnipeg for Calgary on Wednesday. Uh, and uh, it just keeps on rocking, weather permitting. <laughs> we'll see how that We'll see how that works out. Um, but uh, grateful, uh, as always, for your uh, kindness um, and your interest in 
how Canada works. Um, so far, a successful launch, and we greatly appreciate the fact that you're part of that launch. Um, if you can't get to one of the events, you know, you can, you can find the book at any uh, bookstore, or you can go online to one of the uh, booksellers, it's Indigo, Amazon, uh, you name it. Uh, but the book is available pretty much everywhere. And um, uh, grab it. If you're wondering, well, what's it about? How Canada Works sounds like a you know textbook of some kind at a university. It's not. That's not what it is. It's the story of, <laughs> as we always say, I hate to use this term, ordinary Canadians. But they're about people who are in everyday jobs across the country. Um, and yet, why... We may not have thought about it. These jobs connect to us. It's all part of how the country works. You know, there's a political argument out there, and I totally understand it and appreciate it. That's not what we're into. The political argument is, you know, is Canada broken? And usually what they're talking about there is, um, you know, the big programs. You know, the, what's happened to housing? What's happened to the fight against inflation? What about interest rates? Uh, those questions at a political level are really important and, um, and are being discussed and debated by the people who should be discussing and debating them. This is different. This is about people, one assumes, like us, who kind of do their job every day. They don't look for special attention. But those jobs really relate to the way the country works. And that's what we were deciding to do. That's what Mark and I went after. We were looking for, in this particular case, we looked for 28 different jobs and fit the people in those jobs to tell us what actually happens. And I'll tell you something. You will learn something about every one of these jobs, and they're very, very different. And they're all over the country. We ensured that we... We wanted all 10 provinces represented in the book, and they are. Um, and a, ver a real variety of different jobs. So there you go. There's my, <laughs> there's my opening pitch for how Canada works. I uh, hope you grab a copy when you have the opportunity. All right, the discussion for today, because it's Monday, once again, uh, Dr. Janice Stein uh, from the uh, Monk School at the University of Toronto, one of... Um, certainly one of our nation's leading Middle East uh, experts, but not just our nation. Uh, Janice is uh, talked to by organizations and governments and businesses literally around the world. And uh, her advice has been taken for quite a few years now uh, by a lot of different people. And uh, Janice has been good enough to sit with us on uh, Mondays for the last, well, since October 7th. Uh, giving us advice on where we, where we are in the middle of this Israel-Hamas war, that uh, well, today it doesn't look, it does not look good on any level. But enough from me about this. Let's uh, let's bring Janice in because she's the expert. Let's listen to see what uh, what she has to say. As we uh, well, we're about to enter the third month of the Israel-Hamas war. Here's Dr. Janice Stein. So Janice, you warned us last week that we should be uh, not assuming too much with the way the pause was seven days ago. 
seem to be working and then extend a little bit, but that we shouldn't get carried away thinking this was the end. And it certainly isn't. Things, things seem to have gone, as the old saying goes from, you know, it's, well, it's really bad. Let's put it that way. Um, what's your take on where we are right now? As expected, Peter, we hit a wall when it came to the release of male hostages. And it's clear from what happened, both sides wanted one more round. Uh, 24 hours before the talks broke down, uh, Yaya Sinwar made a statement. um, This was just a rehearsal. There'll be many more. If you're looking to extend a ceasefire, um, that's not the way you talk. So they are nowhere near breaking. And it's no secret that the IDF has been chomping at the bit um, to uh, to get back to the fighting. And, uh, and we all know there's a prime minister who has the most perverse set of incentives one can imagine here uh, to keep this war going. So I expected one more round. Uh, this round, I think, is brutal. Um, nowhere to go for people who are being told to move because they're already so concentrated. Uh, they've moved from the north to the south, and now they're uh, being told to go southwest. There's really no room to move here. Um, and all the contradictions that you and I have been talking about from the beginning are just sharpened here. Uh, there is no... Clear military strategy here, yes, you know, break their command and control structure. They did that in the north. It's hard now uh, for senior leaders to communicate with uh, battalion commanders. Yes, they found 500 tunnels. They blew them up. Um, They will probably find another 500 and blow them up. All of this is repairable within three to six months. So you have to ask yourself, is this, frankly, uh, on both sides, what you call violence to set the table for the next round of negotiations, which is what I think it is. But that could be that could be a long way off. I well, mean, the way they're the yes. way they're going at each other now, and the way the Israelis have moved in, and you hear the 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 head of Shin Bet saying. We're going to go after Hamas in Lebanon, in Turkey, in Qatar. We're going after the Hamas leaders. I mean, if they do that, the whole region is going to be aflame. Well, you know, it's really interesting because two things are going on at the same time. Uh, One is the U.S. is putting real pressure on to get these negotiations going again. They're totally broken off by both sides. So it's entirely conceivable that 10 days from now, both sides will be back at the table because the, the, the I mean, what's Hamas's win here? We don't talk about that enough. You know, it's so clear that there is at best a tactical win here for Israel. What's Hamas's win? It's already lost, Peter, because it hoped to get Hezbollah in and to provoke an uprising in the West Bank. They are alone. Now, there's no big win for them left. Um, so at some point, the more rational people around Yaya Sinwar are going to prevail and they will go back to the table. What's the real goal here? The release of all the Palestinian prisoners. That is the only win left for them on the table. It's a big one in the West Bank. Um, 
but it cannot justify uh, the sacrifice that uh, Gazans have made. And so the disaffection in Gaza is already starting. This is one of these wars where nobody wins. Nobody wins. Are both sides or either side still listening to uh, Blinken, to the uh, Americans? You know, there's a long history here between Israel and the United States. The United States said something. Israelis put some earplugs in. Um, they, they, they say they hear, but they don't really hear. And then the United States speaks louder. And finally, it yells. And when it yells, uh, they have no choice but to listen. Why is that? There is resupply going on, which is absolutely critical. There is aid coming out of Congress, which they really need because the hit to the economy is significant. And most important of all, those military assets that are deployed to deter Iran um, from getting involved in this. My hunch is from past rounds, um, there's two weeks, um, something like that, at the, or three weeks at the most. Um, before the United States put so much pressure on Israel that it comes back to the table. The question is, who pushes Hamas that hard back to the table? Well, two or three weeks, because there are going to be thousands more three. dead. Yeah. And, yeah. You know. That's absolutely right. And that's why I say nobody wins here. Nobody wins. And it's and frustrating. And it is, you know, it's... It's beyond, it's awful, and it's almost, you know, it's beyond comprehension um, why Yaya Sinwar would want at this point to hold out more than a very short time. Um, as I said, every all the damage that's inflicted on Hamas um, can be repaired, and actually it's in, you know, it's in his interest to stop now. <laughs> Because if this goes too far um, and he is forced to leave Gaza, then there's not a clear road back for him. And it's for that that I say two to three weeks at the most here. You know, uh, body language is a a dangerous thing to make judgments by. But, you know, you got the two Americans who are most involved in this, Biden and Blinken. Biden... um, with the exception of that one visit early on, is basically uh, at the White House, says what he says, right. seems concerned, wants things to, uh, you know, stop. Um, and the Lincoln, shift in his tone, Peter. Shift yeah, the shift tone in his tone. Long. But the one that bothers me is Blinken, who I think everybody has had, has an enormous amount of faith in uh, and, and respect for Blinken. Um, but he seemed to me in, these, in, in this last week to just be so frustrated. I mean, he's on a shuttle, basically, like we haven't seen in, you know, since Henry Kay's days, we were back and forth. Um, but he just seems in, the, in these last few days just that he's not breaking through, that he's not got the relationship he thought he had with, with some of the principals. You're absolutely right. You can just see the frustration you can feel the exasperation he's on a short fuse but i actually 
don't think uh, Biden is a key player here because when things get bad, he's the one who picks up the phone. So he's what we call he's the closer. The real driver here is not Blinken. It's Jake Sullivan. Um, he's behind the scenes. He's 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 so good at what he does that he unlike Henry Kissinger, that he you know avoids the camera um so that he doesn't distract um but he's really the one um that exerts the influence and um at some point they and when it is and it 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 depends it's so ironic that's why it, it it depends in part on his confidence through the Qataris and the Turks that Hamas will come back to the table I think that when he gets the signals that Hamas will come back to the table and make some kind of a deal, it's not enough to come back to the table, that they're willing to um, reduce the price, let's put it that way, that they have asked for, for the release of men, older men particularly, which is where they started. When their position softens just a bit, that's when I think... um, it will be unmistakably clear. Um, and and look, Peter, while we're talking, um, very large demonstrations in Tel Aviv by hostage families and their members. So there's pressure inside as well. And how long Netanyahu can withstand that is really an open question. When you get it from Washington and you get it from the families, um, but it's a it's a who goes first situation now. I want to get to Netanyahu uh, in a moment, but first of all, uh, you know you've 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 guided us so well over these last couple of months. Um, pretty well, everything you say is, is likely to happen it <laughs> has happened. Uh, what if you're wrong here? If it in I two weeks, t- what if in two to three weeks there, there is no turning back, and it just keeps going like this? What will we be looking at then? Well, you know, that, that I could be wrong, Peter. These are unpredictable elements. Um, I, honestly, this is my best guess, but that's what it is. So the alternative is really, I, I have to say, catastrophic. We have 15,000 plus dead. You know, the numbers are all disputed on all sides. But if you just look at this, Peter, Let's even for a moment take the Israeli estimate seriously that of those 5,000 are Hamas fighters. Because you can't, in that civilian death toll, we can't distinguish uh, Hamas fighters from civilians. They don't wear uniforms. Uh, so it's impossible to separate them out. But the best estimates before this started were 30,000 fighters. Just think, if after all this, 5,000 have been killed, what a hill it is, in fact, to effectively break the military will uh, of Hamas. They've done one-sixth after brutal fighting of this kind with the, you know, it's it's a two-to-one for every fighter. You could argue there are two civilians being killed. So just take those numbers out. If you have to get to 15,000 fighters to break the will, just imagine the catastrophe that we're talking about in Gaza, right? The destruction. I I don't, I mean, I, I just can't see the United States standing by and watching that, frankly. It would be a, an unimaginable catastrophe for everybody. 
There are some I don't pe- know the way back from that in, in in the region. And how long do some of the you know the Arab countries that are sitting this out and privately still pushing Israel to keep going? How long does that continue when you see this kind of of death toll? It's not viable. Yeah, it's a, it, it, right. You know, you run out of adjectives to describe the yeah, the situation. you really do. Um, the other thing that happened in this last week is the New York Times came out with uh, yeah. you know what was seen to be a, a you know blockbuster, basically suggesting that the Netanyahu government had been warned a year ago that Hamas was yeah. planning something like this, even down to the date, you know, the, yeah. an, the anniversary of, uh, of 73. Um, what, do you, what do you make of this? So it, he, he, when I read that story, um, Peter, I thought, okay, here's the story I've been waiting for, right? In every single intelligence failure, without exception, there's a story like this. <laughs> it's the needle in the haystack, right? Um, when you're in the haystack, you don't know where the needle is because you're getting hundreds of reports that come over. You remember the 9-11 story. Sure. Um, yeah. It's been in every single major strategic surprise of the last hundred years. You know, going back to Stalin being surprised when when Nazi Germany attacked Pearl Harbor. You go back through the records, but you know what you're looking for when you're just, going just back. Like I, I missed that one. When Nazi Germany attacked Pearl Harbor? When Nazi Germany attacked Stalinist Russia and when Japan attacked Pearl yeah, okay. Harbor. <laughs> okay. And we went back. All the historians have gone back, found exactly the same newspaper article. Right. right. They had everything. They had all the intelligence information every time. They and, and what they have, just think about it this way. It's a battle plan. That's what it is. They captured the battle plan. Well, there's not a military in the world that doesn't have drawers of battle plans. You know, you remember the fuss in Canada when there was a battle plan with the United States preparing to attack Canada? Right. <laughs> that was discovered in the archives. So when you're seeing one battle plan after the other battle plan after the other battle plan, you have a kind of assessment meeting and you say, well, how real is this one? I'm not sure. The really amazing story here to me is not that they had the battle plan. I would expect that they had the battle plan. The really amazing story is this woman non-commissioned officer who three months ago, said, oh, wow, I'm seeing stuff on the ground. That's consistent with that battle plan. And there were all these, and it's a really interesting story, because these women were what you call spotters along the wall. Right. Um, And they were reporting that Hamas was rehearsing. And a more senior colonel comes in and says... That's that's not serious. You're not seasoned. You don't know what you're talking about. And if you keep this up, <laughs> we're going to have to move you out. So the, the what's really interesting is how you ignore tactical intelligence, you know, evidence of something really happening in front of your eyes. 
Um, and what's also clear, what we also know, Peter, this never got to the National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister. Right. Never got out of the agency. It got suppressed in the agency. That happened in 1973. That happened in the, in the United States before Pearl Harbor. Um, it happens over and over and over again. And why does it happen? It's really interesting. Because people have preconceived ideas. <laughs> so the tactical information doesn't fit with the preconceived ideas. Oh, Hamas doesn't have the sophistication and the ability to coordinate that number of fighters. Um, that was the argument. So this is aspirational. They're not going to do this. We're watching. They're not going to do so when it was happens every time when it was compared to 9-11 um that august of uh, 2001 bush was advised that uh, bin laden was looking for a target on american soil what did right. bush do he went on holidays and a month yeah. a month later they knocked down the it twin happened. towers yeah um so the, the, there have been attempts to equate that to this, are they similar? This is, yes, ex they are similar, uh, exactly. And you remember Richard Clark coming out afterwards sure. and saying, "I warned him. I warned him. I told them." Right. He's still <laughs> uh, saying that. They're, they're, I was watching them the other day. Saying that, yeah, that's right. So they're similar now in the uh, um, in the George Bush case. It got to the top. The warning got to the top, and he dismissed it. Right. So in some ways, you could say that was worse here. It never got out of the intelligence, out of military intelligence. It never moved out of the agency because when the national security advisor who was a, uh, served at the time said, no, I never saw this document. So, and he would have had to see it if it had gone to the prime minister. In many ways, though, this is worse, um, I think, than 9-11. Uh, it's worse because the proportional damage here so much greater, as hard as that is to believe, than what 9-11 did to the United States. Uh, you know, there were 3,000 killed in the United States, a country that is how many times bigger? 30 times bigger. Um, and there were half as many people killed here. So you see the, the, the relative proportions. This was so much worse Um and so there was what what's always stunning. There was nobody, nobody in that agency that said, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> She's a lone voice. She's dissenter. But let's think about this. Is it possible? How do we fit the pieces of this jigsaw puzzle together? And in every um, intelligence failure, there's got to be one person who listens to a dissenter. And ask that question, could that person possibly be right? And what should we do about it? Should we take any precautions? Does, this, and and it, the third way this is worse, this was preventable. Okay. 9-11 was not. United States huge. Which airport? Uh, you know, how many flying schools can you monitor? This was preventable. This was preventable if anybody had taken her seriously. You know, there's this whole story going around, Peter. Oh, that these I, were all I love women. stories. I love stories. Go for <laughs> it. 
this is being furiously fought over right now that the reason they were ignored is because they were young women reporting to older men. I can believe that. I can believe that that yeah. is what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And these older men just dismissed them. It didn't fit their pre-existing concept. And they said, what do these women know? They don't know a damn thing. And they dismissed the women. You know, somebody has to be accountable. Um, and, you know, oh, yeah. Usually you've got to go to the top to, to have to be accountable, whether he knew about it or not. It's just yet another situation where Netanyahu's future looks pretty bleak uh, whenever this well, ends, you know, if, it, if, if we ever get to that point. Well, well that's the big worry um, of people inside who want him gone, right? That the longer this war goes on, the tougher it gets because you need a commission of inquiry and people move on. Um, so for the people who are most anxious to get rid of this prime minister, imagine, Peter, the trust level of prime minister inside the country, 7% of the public trust him. That's the scope of the disaffection with this prime minister who, who has every incentive to keep this going to avoid the end of his career and probably some jail time. And That's there, how bad. There, there's no, uh, there's no movement afoot within, uh, the, you know, that we seem to be aware of. But what I can't understand is, what about the rest of his caucus? What about the rest of his party? What about the coalition? Yeah. Uh, why is nobody so saying, you know, take... you got to go, buddy? Yeah. So the coalition has two parts to it. Two extreme right-wing parties who will never again be in power once this government breaks up. It was only because he was so desperate to form a government to to, to avoid uh, the the criminal process that he's in. That's why he, in fact, made this deal. So how could he be ousted? He's got thirty-two seats in his coalition. He's got there are he's got if he lost twelve of those he would be out. So almost half of his own party has to walk away. Now, that's not small, as you know, in politics, half your caucus walking away. Um, would Benny Gans and his party put enough inducements on the table to lure 12 of his 32 MPs away in order to remove him from office at some point if this continues? That might, that's the only route. Okay. All right. We're going to take a quick pause. I come back. I just want to update the situation in Ukraine, and we'll do that right after this. And welcome back. You're listening to The Bridge, the Monday episode with Janice Stein. Uh, right here on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Glad you're with us, no matter which platform you are on listening to The Bridge on this day. Um, Ukraine. We're trying to keep this in the picture. Almost, single, almost single-handedly, you and I are trying to keep it in the picture, because you look around and there's not much discussion about Ukraine. Um, as a result of what's going on in Israel um, against Hamas. Here's the question. They, for the last, I guess it's been about a month since that, that paper by the uh, Ukraine 
chief of the defense staff, chief of the army, uh, came out, uh, which basically said, we're deadlocked here. This isn't going anywhere. Um, so there's been, I guess, an internal fight, would you describe it that way, between Zelensky and, I would. and this guy? Uh, <laughs> I would. Talk about it for a minute. You know, Peter, when I first read the paper, I thought to myself, wow, just, you know, what commander of the army would come out and describe a war as a stalemate? That is just a huge political problem for the president that he does that. So I asked some of our Ukrainian friends, what's going on? Uh, how could he do this? And I got hems and haws for answers. Well, he's naive. He's a military leader. He doesn't understand the politics. Frankly, I was not convinced. And in fact, it has been a, a huge problem for Zelensky. All of a sudden, there is now um, a debate inside the country about the war, about the future of the war. Um, politics is now back um, inside um, Ukraine, which it has not been. Um, and you have opposition parties <laughs> um, trying to assess the terrain. Is there is there mileage to be gained here? That's not to say that Ukrainians are not determined to fight, but there's questioning about the strategy. And Zelensky, in a sense, owns that strategy. Um, and so politics is back. Add that to what is, again, I understand behind the scenes, growing pressure um, from even the United States, as well as some European allies on Zelensky to start thinking hard about what a ceasefire would look like, um, which they have not asked him to do before, and certainly not the United States. Now, again, this is a one-sided conversation. Where's Putin in this? Right. <laughs> Do we have any indication that he has any interest whatsoever in a ceasefire? No, um, not unless they're back-channel discussions um, in which he's sending some kind of a message. But I would honestly say that as a result of that paper, uh, Zelensky um, is under political pressure for the first time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's been treated like a hero by uh, those around the world and uh, and certainly uh, those in his own country in the uh, certainly the opening year to two years of the war now. Um, you know, your question about Putin seems to be the key one. Like, yeah, where is he in all this? Is he just saying, here's this may be my best way out because it looks like well, the other guys are giving up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure this would be an opportunity for him. Now, let's not forget, Peter, that there are presidential elections in Russia, so-called elections, right? <laughs> in March, um, so three months away. Uh, last week, we saw for the first time some interesting stirrings from mothers, <laughs> and you know, I always pay attention to that um, when the mothers get organized. Um, they're hard. They're hard to stigmatize as traitors when mothers take to the streets and start demonstrate. You know, when that happened in Israel, that ended the Lebanon War. 
you know how important the mothers were in producing the Good Friday Agreement. There's, you know, there they they have they pack um, a, a political wallop that almost no other group does. And last week, for the first time, um, mothers demonstrated inside Russia, and that demonstration was not shut down. Now he doesn't. Putin doesn't want this before the elections. Uh, three months from now. So my sense is there will be absolutely no movement now, but there the opening might come after the election, which he will undoubtedly win by an astonishing number. Right. We can, that's one prediction I make with <laughs> very little risk to me. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how they can get like 97.3% of the yeah, vote. That's right. Maybe it would be 92 to make it a little more credible than it otherwise (laughs) might be. Uh, But if we're going to see a break, that might be the moment after the election. All right. Let's leave it at that for this week. Another great conversation with Janice Stein. And we appreciate it, Dr. Stein, as always. (laughs) And we'll talk to you again in a week. Good to be with you, Peter. Dr. Janice Stein uh, with us as she has been on every Monday since October 7th, guiding us through this, you know, this brutal story, a complicated story with all kinds of different twists and turns in it, uh, as we've witnessed over these last couple of months. And uh, it's been, it really has been uh, special uh, for Janice to join us each week on that and help us try to understand what's going on, what might happen uh, as we move forward on this story. Uh, okay, a couple of uh, explanations. I know that uh, especially those who, um, who worry about audio quality, and I do hear from you every once in a while, uh, we're probably wondering, what's going on there? I, you know, it, it's kind of scratchy at times, and uh, you know, maybe the voice sounds a little different. I'm on the road. <laughs> I'm sitting in a hotel room in Halifax uh, right now doing this. And um, so as a result, when you're on the road, you take a kind of a little portable unit because with a control board and everything, because everything is, I do it all, right? Like I mix it all. I do the technical end of things as well as the uh, editorial ends, and I enjoy it. It's fun. I'm not complaining. Um, but when we go on the road, I, uh, I, I take the little board in a special uh, case. But yesterday, <laughs> on, on the way here in the Toronto airport, I dropped it. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> like, I have no idea whether it's going to work when I hook it all up in Halifax. Uh, so I'm just glad that it's it's worked, although it is a little, um, you know, it's much more, um, it, it, it's much, it, it's much um, more um, possible to have problems with it uh, in the in the production. Um, with the microphones, it's a different microphone. It's a clip-on microphone. Occasionally, it kind of brushes against my sweater, uh, and therefore you hear that scratchy sound. So I apologize for that. Uh, just uh, living the life, living the on-the-road life, um, but still enjoying doing it uh, every every minute of it. Um, okay, I. You know, I I've got room for a little end bit, and as you know, the end bits that I like to focus on. Uh, sometimes they're climate change, sometimes they're aviation ones. I'm, you know, a big aviation fan. 
I, you know, I, if, if you read the book, How Canada Works, one of the profiles is of a air traffic controller. And it's a, as it turns out, it's an air traffic controller right here in Halifax, Amber Duaron. And um, she's a, a wonderful person to focus on in terms of what happens in that air, con- air traffic control tower, how she ended up in the job, why she loves the job, how important that job is for all of us, right? Just one of the key elements of the air traffic system. Uh, and what controllers do is sometimes forgotten by us. We tend to focus on you know the pilots and the flight attendants, um, but quite frankly, uh, the air traffic controller is incredibly important in terms of uh, what happens and the success. Uh, Amber's colleagues in the United States are going through a tough time. You know, the, the airspace situation in the States is, is, is very safe, uh, just like it is in Canada. Uh, but potentially dangerous close calls in the States have been happening on average multiple times a week this year. New York Times reported that in, uh, in August. Some controllers told the Times they fear that a deadly crash is inevitable. Why is all this happening? Apparently, um, it's fatigue, distractions, and demoralized workforce in the States that is increasingly prone to making mistakes. The findings are based on interviews with more than 70 current and former air traffic controllers, pilots, and federal officials as well as thousands of pages of federal safety reports and internal FAA records that the Times obtained. In the fiscal year, this is reading from the Times, in the fiscal year that ended September 30th, there were 503 air traffic control lapses in the states that the FAA preliminary categorized as significant, 65% more than in the prior year. So that is not a pretty situation in the states again, I underline. But if you want to know more about that job, what's entailed, how you get there, um, and why it's an important part of understanding how our country works. You'll find her story in How Canada Works, the new book by Mark Bulgich and myself. Uh, It's on sale now. So we profile 28 different jobs that maybe you don't very often think about, but the fact is they help make Canada work, and they're very different very different jobs all over the country. So enjoy it if you can. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this day. Tomorrow, a special interview with one of my favorite authors because he deals in my favorite subject, one of my favorite subjects anyway, and that is Arctic exploration. The author's name is Ken McGugan. There's probably no one finer in terms of telling the story of exploration in Canada's Arctic how it opened up the country in many ways, and the people behind it. It's called Searching for Franklin. It's, uh, it's Ken's, I think, sixth or seventh book uh, that has dealed with Arctic exploration, and they're fascinating. It's a part of our history that, well, I'm glad I, I uh, have devoted a lot of time to reading about. I worry sometimes that many Canadians don't understand just how important it is. Uh, to the development of our country. But uh, you'll get a hint tomorrow listening to Ken. Ken will be with us uh, for tomorrow's show, and I'm absolutely looking forward to him being with us. That's it for uh, this day. 
That's tomorrow's show. Wednesday, of course, uh, Smoke Mirrors the Truth with Bruce. Uh, Thursday, it's your turn. So you let us know what you think about whatever the issues may be. And uh, Friday, of course, Good Talk with Bruce and Chantel. The other thing on Thursday will be The Random Rancher with his final of the three-part series on the political leaders, his advice to the political leaders. He's done Trudeau and Singh. Thursday, it's Polyev. Should be interesting. We'll dial in then. All right, I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.